You are listening to the Catholic Recon Podcast, testimonies from Catholic reverts and converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. Don't forget to leave a review and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Catholic Recon Testimonies from Reverts and Converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. Please remember to subscribe to my channel, like the videos, and share the videos. We would love for these testimonies to reach more and more people, potential converts, and, and reverts as well. This week's guest is Deacon Chris Pravon. Deacon Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eddie. Deacon Chris was a very, very critical part of my wife's RCIA formation, I guess. She, he, he, taught a number of the classes and she learned so much about church history from this man and i'm just delighted to finally have him on the show and be able to have his testimony heard by others yeah i think we've been talking about how to schedule this uh meeting for about six or eight months isn't there so, anyway. yeah i think when i started this channel i thought i need to have you on and here we are okay. god's timing yep yeah, so let me go ahead and get started and feel free to interrupt with questions or whatever. So um, I was blessed to be born into a, a Catholic family. So I'm a, a cradle Catholic and my mother and my grandmother had incredibly strong faith, um, believed firmly in the church, the church's teachings and raised us according to that. Now, my dad was baptized Catholic, but his parents died. He's a recession child. The Great Depression, and um, he wasn't really raised in the faith, uh, but he never hindered any of any of our uh, uh, worship or prayer or anything. But I have very fond memories growing up of both Catholic schools praying the Rosary, especially during the Lenten season, and having very joyful Easter and Christmas um, festivities in the house. So uh, we were very blessed. Four, four other brothers, there were five of us. My youngest brother is a Down syndrome, was a Down syndrome adult. He passed just a couple of years ago um, and was very much of a joy and uh, an important part of the love of our family, which I didn't really appreciate and understand growing up because I, I saw probably more of the hardships than I saw the blessings of the hardships. Uh, growing up, but my mother and father were, and grandmother who grew up with us were all very um, dedicated to Mark and showed us what it really means to honor and revere uh, human life. Um, so when I was 14 years old, uh, my family moved after my freshman year of high school, so it was 15, to Tennessee, East Tennessee. I was living in, we were, I was born and living in Syracuse. New York. And it was, it was at that time a very strong Catholic uh, community. A lot of Catholics, a lot of Irish, Italians, um, Catholic Germans um, in the city. So there were Catholic churches on many of the street corners. And so it was a real shock to me when I moved from that environment to East Tennessee, which was up in uh, the Appalachian region and very much part of the Bible Belt, where there was only less than 2% of the population was Catholic and it was predominantly Baptist and reformist. Um, and so it went from a lot of Catholic churches and Catholic communities to a lot of Baptist and fundamentalist. Um, and I, I had friends in high school, made friendships. Um, but those that were strong in their faith were always a challenge because they were, you know, challenging me on my faith and beliefs with the underlying supposition that, you know, we're a Bible community and you're not. The Catholic Church doesn't revere and read the scriptures. It's not scriptural at all, uh, you know, on and on and on. So that was difficult emotionally, but it also... I think helped me in later life to recognize that that's probably where I need to lead from as I have evangelization opportunities with non-Catholics is to demonstrate not just the knowledge of the Bible, but also the source of the Catholic church and our teachings and our worship are all very, very biblical. 
Um, and we can easily show all of that without even going into any of the tested books, which is yeah. the beauty of it. But I needed to dive in and figure that out. Um, so while I was in high school, actually before high school, I start, started feeling you know, a call to the priesthood. And I spent my first year of college at a seminary college in upstate New York, um, up on the Canadian border, the St. Lawrence Seaway, called Wadhams Hall. Now it has since closed down, but I went there for a year, studied philosophy and some theology and discerned that that just probably was not where God wanted me to be. So I switched to engineering, uh, went to Tennessee Tech. My wife and I, my future wife, Karen, and I met there. Um, um, and I was very active in the Newman organization um, there in Cookville. Um, St. Thomas, uh, Aquinas Catholic Church, lector, Eucharistic minister and things. So I stayed very much attached to uh, the church and, you know, worked very hard not to miss any masses on weekends or, or holy days. Then uh, I graduated, uh, Karen and I were married and I went to graduate school at the University of Virginia. And that's really where the whole secular thing started. My wife uh, isn't Catholic. Um, she's from a reformist tradition, but, you know, loves Christ. Um, so I graduated from the University of Virginia in 83 and got a job offer with HP here in Boise and just jumped on it because I wanted to always live. I always wanted to live in the Northwest. I always wanted to be um, in the West. And so not being in California, but one of the other states was just great. So I came out here. And um, anyways, that started my 26 year career with HP. And that was just at the time at the start of the LaserJet printer. Um, the year after I joined HP, it was introduced here on the Boise site and the business just went straight up from there. It was just an incredible, incredible career growth, incredible amount of growth every year, very popular products, customers loved them. And um, you know, it became a huge, huge business for HP. So that's really uh, the, the business that I uh, rode during my career. I got up to be a vice president of a number of different businesses here on the Boise site, uh, spent an enormous amount of time traveling. Um, you know, and I had the, the lifestyle of an executive where you're working all the time. Um, you're dealing with difficult issues, difficult people issues. You're managing a very diverse workforce. Um, and frankly, when a crisis comes up, your time is the company's time anyway. So you have to drop everything and start addressing whatever the issue is. So I traveled a lot. Uh, we lived in Europe for three and a half years and I probably traveled 80% of the time, which was very difficult on Karen and the kids. But we were able to go to mass on the local army base, Patch Barracks. So I was a lector there and things, but my faith was holding on by my fingertips. Um, I wasn't really engaged in ministries in the churches other than being a lector, because that was easy for me. Um, but I certainly wasn't engaged in learning my faith or strengthening my faith. Uh, was not engaged in daily prayer, um, not meeting and seeking out other good Catholic men for community opportunities or Catholic couples for community opportunities. So my faith wasn't that strong, but I was drawn to the mass. I continued to be strong, strongly drawn to the Eucharist. And so that kept me going. So we returned from Europe in 96 uh, to Boise, fortunately enough. Um, and then about 2005, 2006, I started to get this yearning to re-engage in my faith more. And my son, my middle son, Peter, was going to Notre Dame. He was attending Notre Dame. And so I had access to um, some theology expertise through him and the Holy Cross Fathers. And so he helped feed me some books on the early church. Because the question that I had this voice in my head asking me these questions. And the first question that was asked me, he was asking me is, is the Catholic Church really the true church? Is it the church that Christ founded? You know, and a lot of that stretches back to my years living in Tennessee. Sure. Um, 
in growing up through high school, as well as getting out into the secular world and traveling extensively through Asia and Europe by the time that I was traveling much, very much was, had turned secular. And so even though I worked very hard and desired to go to mass when I was traveling on weekends, and I successfully did that in most of the places that I went, it was very clear these were not Christian countries or marginally Christian. So that was the first question was, did Christ found a church and was the Catholic church the true church or what happened to them? And so I read a number of books until I finally stumbled upon a book named The Four Witnesses. And that was like throwing gasoline on the little match, the little light that was inside of me. And it just exploded. Um, and even to this day, I keep the book and I recommend it to anybody that's searching with that same question. And it was, a, it was um, on an airplane that I started reading it and spent most of my time reading it. My wife was sitting next to me and she could just see that I was totally engrossed in this book. And I remember her asking me, um, when you're done with that book, can I read it? And, and would I like it? And I you know, was very candid. I said, sure, you're more than welcome to read it when I get done with it, but you won't like it. Um, so I gave it to her and she read it. And she was very unsettled when she gave it back to me. Um, and that's about how far our discussions went because she had trouble with it and I didn't want to create problems for her. Sure. Um, but that started me on a road to reading. And then in 2009, I left HP. I wasn't old enough to retire, but I left HP um, because I felt the strengthening of this call. And, and being a goal-oriented person, I... Um, I said, well, what am I going to do when I retire? The motivation for retiring, the impetus for me retiring at the time was to help my parents. My father was having dementia issues, my mother, and they had been living in, a, in the same house that they had built when we moved to Tennessee. And they couldn't care for it. My mother was feeling like she was living in a dungeon um, because she was giving all of her time caring for my dad and her social relationships, time at church and everything had really fallen. So um, that was the impetus for me to leave at the time. So my first goal was to help my parents. And I saw that my wife's parents were not too far behind them. Um, and so caring for our parents. The second reason, and, and this is important, um, that there was this voice still inside of me, the same voice um, asking me questions. And so, my second objective was to re-engage in my faith, reinvigorate my faith. And then the third one, I'm a golfer, and so I wanted to get my handicap down to a five. So if I'm gonna retire, I'm gonna play golf, I'm gonna get my handicap down, I'm gonna have fun, I'm gonna be a finally a good golfer. Um, so I left in, at the end of October, 2009, and uh, we spent a lot of time the next two years in Tennessee helping my folks. Uh, eventually got them into a retirement center. My, my dad died in 2012, I believe, which is perfect because one of the things Karen and I said was that if, if I waited to retire, I had two more years before I retired, if I waited to retirement and one of my parents passed away, that would not be worth it. And so while I was 55, my dad passed, but we got a chance to spend two years I got a chance to help them, got a chance to see them a lot um, and, and help them get into a retirement center. Karen and I helped them get into a retirement center. Um, my mom lived until 2018, uh, 2019. Um, Karen's parents became, her mother became shortly ill after my dad passed. And then she died in 2016. Um, her dad just died last December. So we had a good 10 years of living with, helping, and yeah. trying to make a difference in our parents and, and in-laws' lives. Um, and probably about 2012, or no, 2010, January 2010, I lived at Curcio. And that was important because guys like Dan Long and Pat 
Lind and others had just been hounding me for six or seven years before I retired to go to a Curcio. And you know, the last thing I wanted was a Curcio. And you know, I had a lot of legitimate excuses not to. Uh, with the amount of travel I was doing, it was hard to give up three or four days to you know, attend a Curcio. Um, but <laughs> after I announced my retirement, they were all over me, um, like white on rice. And, um, you know, I didn't have any other excuses. So I said, fine, I'll do it. So in January, 2010, I, I attended the Curcio, which attending the Curcio was a difficult experience for me because I was fighting my faith. I was fighting what I came to later understand to be a call of God to grow deeper and go deeper in the faith, grow deeper in the faith. And, you know, I have an issue with um, oppositional defiance, uh, which unfortunately is throughout my whole family. So we all have it. Um, but the kindness of guys like Pat and Dan, God's patience, I got through it. But what really helped me was the fourth day experience. And I think you're going to attend our fourth day meeting this coming Wednesday um, to get that experience and see what that's like, but, but getting engaged with strong Catholic men who also are saying, look, I'm flawed, I've got issues, but God's calling me to, and I found that I'm happier following what God is trying to get me to do in my life than I am trying to do it my own, my own way. Um, and so we've met faithfully for the last 10 years or so every Wednesday morning. Um, and it's made a huge difference in me and my life. I, I look forward to it every week. Um, and we have great meetings, great men, great meetings. But this quiet voice kept asking me questions. And in the Curcio, the, the tripod, uh, the, leg of the leg of the stool that really resonated with me the most was study. And so if, if I had a broader camera, camera here to show you here in my office, you'd see all my books stacked up or all my uh, shelves stacked up with books and videos and stuff that I've been reading and watching over the last 10 or 11 years. In following this voice, asking me questions, me reading to answer those questions in my heart. And then about 2014, I started to get a call to the diaconate and it was it felt exactly like this call that I, I got when I was in high school about the priesthood. And um, I, could, it, I could feel it, I could, I could hear the call. And you know, we all fight it. Uh, I, I haven't run into a deacon or a priest that you know, just got the call and said, man, now I'm just gonna go do this. Um, so I fought it for a short time, but realizing what it was, um, I said, I got to take this seriously. And then my wife and I in 20, I think it was 2015, we were up in New York visiting a priest from my year at Wadhams Hall. And he was celebrating his 50th anniversary of ordination. And at this small parish, probably similar in size to like St. Mary's here in town, here in Boise, the bishop came and 40 of his brother priests came to help him celebrate, 40. They're in wheelchairs, they're using walkers, they're on crutches, canes, um, all with white hair or no hair. And I'm sitting in the pew just crying and thinking to myself, how selfish can I be? These men have given their entire life for God and his church. And he's asking me to come and engage in a life as a married man in his church. And he's blessed me with this wonderful family, material means, a great career, a wonderful place to live. And I can't even say yes. How selfish can I be? So I got back to Boise, Karen and I talked. I contacted um, Deacon Richard Cullick at the time, put in an application uh, for the diaconate here in the diocese and um, was accepted starting in the fall of 2016. Um, so feeling this call 
and and also you know being goal oriented i said you know if i'm going to do this then i want to know the faith <clears throat> i want to understand christ's call the role of the church the sacraments the mass because i felt i was not just being called to teach but the witness and so i um I always wanted to attend the University of Notre Dame and had chances to, but I kept feeling this going out in the back of my mind as well. So one day Father Ben sends me this link to the Masters of Theology program, Master of Arts at Notre Dame. And I said, great, I'll give it a call. I'll give it a try. So I put in an application and I talked to the department head or the woman that was in charge of, of the program. And I explained to her what I was trying to do and um, they accepted me despite bombing the standardized test. Now that's something that's consistent throughout my life. The only thing consistent in my life is I bombed every standardized test I've ever taken, every single one. Um, and so keeping up the tradition, I bombed this one, but they accepted me anyway. And I started in class in uh, <clears throat> the summer of 2016. And on the first day of my classes, my mother-in-law passed away. <clears throat> that's how I remember the date that she passed in the event. So anyway, greatest educational experience I ever had those four summers at Notre Dame. I was in class every day with anywhere from 15 to 50. Um, uh, I call them kids, but they're young adults just graduated from college that were attending to get this master's in theology in order to go out and serve Christ church to teach in schools, to um, be directors of religious education in parishes, to work in retreat centers, um, to be youth ministers, to work in the focus organization as minister, uh, ministers. Um, and they're, they're very smart kids, very smart young adults. We also had some Holy Cross seminarians, all of which were brilliant people. Um, but in every class, I was always the oldest person hands down. And so people were holding the door for me, addressing me as sir, yes, sir, no, sir. Can I get the door for you, sir? Do you need somebody to carry your tray in the cafeteria, sir? So it was all quite funny and, and very humorous for the first summer. Um, they weren't giving me a hard time. It was just, you know, respect for this poor elderly guy. Um, and they were all actually kind of impressed, I think, that I was studying for the diaconate. Um, that here I am retired in responding to God's call. I was more awed at, at how they were responding to God's call than mine, but I think we helped each other. You know, I think seeing people and being with people that are listening to God, discerning what he wants them to do and going through that process, we all become a support system for each other. So anyways, I graduated in the summer of 2018 uh, with my MA degree and finished up my um, uh, formation for the diaconate was ordained this past fall up in Coeur d'Alene uh, on October 10th, 2020. There were five of us in the class um, and uh, we've all become very, very close. Every time folks come to Boise, they come and stay with me and Karen. And um, it's just been a wonderful experience. So I'm serving at St. Mark's um, and love it. I'm probably serving a couple of masses, three, sometimes four masses a week. I'm teaching RCIA and had the joy of um, working with your, with your wife as she came through. I'm also doing a number of different uh, Bible studies. A number of them are coming from the St. Paul Center who also Scott Hahn and, and Matthew Kelly and Brant Petrie and all these wonderful theologians were, have been very instrumental in um, me and my journey. Um, I should mention that the two areas of focus that I've had, both while I was at Notre Dame and, and outside of that in my reading are sacramental theology and biblical studies. Um, and so, and I have to thank my wife for the Bible studies. Um, in that emphasis. You know, she once challenged me about it. Again, this perception that the Catholic Church and Catholics don't follow the Bible, don't know the Bible, 
et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, in her words, don't revere and read scripture like we do in my church. And so I sat back and I thought, and I said, you know, she may be, she certainly is right with me. So I dove into it. And that's why I've done the studies that I've done and invite people in. I find that Catholics love the Bible. They love studying the Bible. Um, but as Catholics, we haven't needed to study scripture because we were taught the teachings of the church, the dogmas, and what we do that is all based on scripture. But we aren't exposed to the scripture part. We are exposed and learn the church's teachings, right? But the problem that that brings in, especially in this era, is that the language spoken by Christians is the Bible. Yeah. So it's hard to have a discourse with anybody outside of the Catholic Church if you don't know Scripture, if you haven't read Scripture, and you don't understand that, you haven't come to understand that missing link between the Church's teachings and Scripture. Well, and that's probably why the Catechism is such a massive resource for this because you can go into council language early church language and connect it to supporting verses and i think that that for some people it's a good um gap filler it is um if you come from the major i think if, if folks come from major uh protestant Mainline Protestant groups. Mainline, yeah, good point. Because they have catechisms, yeah. they have psalters, yeah. right? And they have gone through some process of defining the precepts of their churches. But if, you, if you're encountering, especially fundamentalist, evangelical, or reformist, who it's, it's strictly scripture, mm -hmm. and they don't recognize councils. Good point. They've never heard of the councils. And they don't, they've never heard of these steps that go from biblical teaching to what does this mean? And here's the teachings of the church. Even the Nicene Creed, few of them have ever read it or heard about it. Mm -hmm. Well, and I've said this before, I still want to understand why there are so many of those denominations that you just described. They accept so many uh, Bible commentaries. So, You'll, you'll say, okay, scripture alone, but then they will draw on centuries of theologians and their writings as they comment on the verses. So then over time, I think we talked about this at one point over coffee, over time, those opinions, those commentaries do seep into what, it, what is scripture. At what point have you gone outside of scripture? And someone will say, as long as you don't contradict the essence of scripture, but even that is subjective without a true, a true guide. That's, it's right. inevitable. I mean, you can't. Right. Yeah. Some of them read the commentaries. Many of them do not. They just base it on scripture with the belief that once they've been baptized, they've received the Holy Spirit and the Got Holy it. Spirit guides them. In the reading of scripture well what that creates is in a church of a hundred a hundred different exegetes and if there is no authority to interpret scripture if christ didn't find it create a church founded a church with the expressed authority of teaching the word and interpreting the word then you get forty thousand different denominations well, yeah, it is inevitable. Um, right. It's, it's said often, but if you say, well, the Holy Spirit is guiding me, compared to what? Because then you're left with your ego. You're left with the flesh. And you could say, no, 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 no. I've renounced the flesh. It's me and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Well, it's you and the Holy Spirit. You have potentially launched your own theology. You've potentially yes. launched your own yes. denomination, even if you haven't put it on paper up here. This is what I talk about in, in my testimony video. I just realized that that becomes your own statement of faith 
and you can just say it's not about the walls. And yet the things that you've borrowed to form that theology came from a single church if you go back far enough. But I know right. that that's difficult. So, yeah, and, and the behavior that it creates. And, and let me preface this by saying that the folks that I, the vast majority of the people that I've met, their Protestants are very genuine in terms of their love of Christ. Absolutely. Believing that they're and seeking to live their life according to how God wants them to live it. So there's, there's nothing mischievous or false in the vast, vast, vast majority of these folks. But to your point, what it leads, the behavior that it leads to is believing that you're guided with the Holy Spirit and that your reading of scripture is correct. Yeah. It also leads you to behaviors of, well, I'm moving into this new town or new section of town. I'm moving across town and I'm going to go find a church that one, I like the preacher, i.e., he preaches on stuff that I agree with and I like, makes me feel good. And two, I enjoy the worship service. That is the choir sounds great or whoever's singing. As opposed to, I think, a more fundamental question that Peter Kreef really addressed early in his life is he said, you know, if, if Jesus is my Lord and Savior and he founded a church, I need to go find that church. And I need to tame my ego, get some humility, and follow him. Yeah. Not follow me. Yeah. Well, you also said, yeah, if you're 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 going maybe for the for the preacher, I mean, that's what really attracted and kept us where we were. I just thought he was phenomenal. And of course, worship, but the also also to mentioned that if those are not found or they're not satisfactory well then a person can say let's start our own let's get it right they may yeah. not say it yeah. in those words but they i've heard yeah. that many a time many times we got tired of this over here we got tired of hypocrisy as if you're not going to create hypocrisy yeah. in your own sect we got tired of the church that were the churches that were splitting up over minor issues but let's create another church to solve that yeah. it doesn't make any sense it starts to get more and more illogical almost exponentially illogical that's how i feel yeah i think you're right um and that's what i experienced at age 15 14 16 when i moved to tennessee and there's a baptist church on literally every street first street baptist second street baptist first avenue baptist you know and all of them are slightly different in their offshoots. And we see it in, in Boise today. There's a, I think a Lutheran church going up near St. Mark's that split off from a Anglican community. Uh, no, an Anglican church split off from another Anglican church. Um, and so they're building a completely new church of however many millions of dollars because this community just didn't agree with the minister or preacher from the other church. And that's, I think that is a problem in our society because it, it just perpetuates this um, relativistic approach to um, religion, God, and ultimately truth, which is God, right? Yeah. Source of all truth is God. But so, so we don't get down to the point of trying to address this, but what makes me feel good? What makes me feel comfortable? And that's a problem. And it, and that's just the way things are, I guess. Yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. Um, can you go back to, uh, to the Curcio weekend? Can you talk about that? Because I assume many people that find the video aren't going to know, you know, maybe just go right. a little bit into it. I know you can't flesh out the entire weekend, but. Yeah, I'm happy to. And um, I would encourage any of your viewers when they hear this, if they're interested, um, contact you or contact me and we'll get them more information because it is absolutely a fantastic weekend. Um, the Curcio is really a mini course in Christianity, um, which mini course in Catholicism. And it's meant for men and women. There's a separate Curcio for men and, and separate one for Curcio run at different times during the year. Men put the men's curcio on, women put the women's curcio on. Where 
the laity comes in and for essentially three days, <clears throat> we learn the, the basic tenets and teachings of Christ in his church. And we pray and we go to mass and we open up to one another the challenges that we have in our lives, the blessings that we have in our lives, all with the intention to accept the Holy Spirit and move us on the path of reconciling with Christ and living our life according to the precepts of the church and the expectations of Christ. And so at the end of those three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, um, the Curcio weekend ends. But then each week, you're supposed to get together for this fourth day, as in the fourth day being the rest of your life, to meet with these men that are to keep you honest in your uh, study, your piety, and your actions of evangelization, both in keeping you on this narrow path to a closer communion with Christ, but also recognizing that it's not just me and God or me and Jesus. It's me as a member of his mystical body out trying to help others that are on this path come into his mystical body. Um, and so the fourth days are both an adrenaline rush for me because I get to hear how these men are leading holy lives or great lives, inspiring me to help lift my life up, but also how they're encountering other people, men and women, and helping them um, in their path to Christ. And uh, we meet for about an hour to an hour and a half. There's eight or 10 of us, typically over a cup of coffee. And there's a structured conversation where we talk about how God has been active in our life this last week. How are we worshiping and encountering God in our piety, through piety? What are we reading and studying so that we better get to know who God is? Um, and then who are we sharing the faith with? It could be our family. How are we helping our wife through a difficult time? Um, how are we helping our children to come to know Jesus and bringing them up in a Christian environment? Um, you know, I had an episode, I think I told you about a couple of weeks ago, about a flat tire. Oh, and yes. You got to share a fallen that story. Away, fallen away Catholic who came, saw my deacon pin, came up to me and said, I'm, I'm, I'm following the 10 commandments. I try to pray to God every day. Do I need to come to mass? Do I need to come to church? Is it important that I come to church? And I said, absolutely it is. If you want to have a physical experience with Jesus Christ, a physical encounter with him, you come to mass for the Eucharist. You come to reconciliation to experience God's mercy. And you can only do that at, at, in church right, in his church. And so God meant for me to encounter that man that morning, right? And so I wasn't carrying a placard. Um, you know, I don't have a bumper sticker on the back of my car, Jesus saves. But we encounter these people. And, and, and didn't that mean that you missed out on one of those fourth day meetings as a result of the? Well, no, it was actually, I had to leave the meeting early. Oh, you left I early. Wanted, yeah, I wanted to get to Le Schwab when they opened yeah, and I got there 15 minutes before they opened, I was the third person in line. This gentleman I was talking to was second and there was a woman in front of him that was first. Um, but I missed serving at the last school mass of the year at St. Mark's. So the blessing was God gave me this flat tire so that I would encounter this man and talk with him. Um, and then I couldn't serve at the mass, but I was able to sit with my granddaughter during the last school mass of the year, which she keeps asking me, Grandpa, will you sit with me during the school mass? And I'm usually serving at the mass. So yeah. I got to sit with her. So two great blessings. And Le Schwab didn't even charge me for fixing the flat tire. On top of it all. <laughs> On top of it all. And I had a good cup of coffee with my fourth day brothers. That's so anyway, so that's what the Curcio is about. It's, yeah. it, it's, it's bringing people together, giving them the information and the team getting out of the way for the Holy Spirit to do their work, to do yeah. his work. Yeah. Um, 
And so you'll learn things about your faith. You'll come to a deeper understanding of the things you already knew about your faith. But also you'll go through this search and you'll have to ask yourself the question, do I want, will, am I willing to subvert my ego and take on this cloak of humility in order to follow the spirit in leading me to Jesus Christ who leads me to the Father? And that's what made the weekend difficult for me. Um, you know, I was an executive at HP. I was running worldwide businesses, always very successfully. Um, I was well compensated. And so, you know, I was pretty indestructible. I was pretty brilliant. You know, I had all the answers because I had been successful for 26 years. Um, but not successful with Christ and not successful in my life with others and not successful as I needed to be in my marriage and my relationships with my children. And that's what the fourth day showed me. And so I had to put my ego in the closet and start working on my humility. And anyways, it's been a joyous but difficult ride sometimes. And I'm certainly not all there, but um, it's, it was a great experience that I would recommend for people that know they are being called and searching out and want to improve their marriage, their relationship with their kids by changing their relationship with Christ. Wow. And doing it in the Catholic context. Incredible. Hey, I was curious, how do you, when you have a dialogue with Protestants, how, how do you approach the topic of Catholicism? If, you know, this is such a broad question, but if someone comes to you and says, I feel that Catholics have this desire to earn everything you know i used to get that um actually fair amount over the last few years since coming coming back to the church i've read a lot of comments like that about earning salvation earning salvation you say something about curcio you're earning your salvation i mentioned exodus 90 you're earning your salvation <laughs> i was wondering if you could speak to how you would handle that type of claim um the first thing that i would do is is I would try to figure out if we have the time to have the conversation. If we don't have the time, then I would say, great question. Let's sit down over a cup of coffee or get a soft drink or something for an hour, an hour and a half and talk about this. Um, so ultimately I wanna get into an environment where we can collaborate, communicate, discuss, and get to a, a non-emotional facts-based, conversation, facts being scripture and practices in the church. Um, so I would invite the person out for a cup of coffee or something just to ease the situation. If we don't have the time, I would say, well, what makes you think the Catholic church has to earn, teaches we have to earn salvation? Um, and I would get the information from them. Where are they getting this from? Sure. Many times they've just developed this perception or they've been told by a preacher. And I know where this all comes from. I've studied and researched this fairly extensively, um, but I wanna see where they came from and how they developed that perception. And then start talking with them through scripture and through some extra scriptural things about how that isn't necessarily true or how what they've read and interpreted, they've interpreted either incorrectly or not completely. Sure. So I wouldn't have a problem with saying, well, do you have your Bible with you? Let's take a look at that passage and let's chew on it a little bit. And often what they do is they just take a verse. So they're pulling a verse out of context and making it a rule. Another great example is uh, repetitive prayer and Jesus in the gospel of Matthew talking to the Pharisees and the scribes about the Gentiles or the, the Pharisees being proud and chanting things over and over and over. And they recite that one line as repetitive prayer is bad. So if you go back to that and you take six or eight verses before and six or eight verses uh, after it, you can put it in context and say, well, what Jesus is really indicating here, or what Paul's indicating here, and I'm hearing is this, not necessarily how you're interpreting it. And if you're using their Bible, it's an awfully difficult thing to refute. But you're not trying to re you're not trying to embarrass them. You're not trying to harass them. You're not trying to 
you know, put them under your thumb. You're trying to get to an honest conversation about what scripture is saying and not saying. The other thing is, is I download the um, digital Bible from the Augustine Institute on my phone. And as I'm reading it, or I'm reading scripture, and I come across verses, I have them organized under headings or tags. So I have a tag on faith and works in all the different verses that I've come across that specifically speak to, you will be judged by your deeds, you will be judged by your works. And I think I'm up to a total of 37 or 38 that say that in the New Testament and the Old Testament. So I wouldn't have a problem of opening up scripture and going through this and going through six or eight or 10 from throughout scripture to say, you know, what this says is that we will be judged. It doesn't mean we earn, but it means we will be judged by how we live out our faith, which is love of God and love of our neighbor. And then talk, then go to the next level and talk about why this is important. And ultimately try to get to the verses in Romans um, and Galatians, especially Romans, where this perception grew from. And then bring in James and why James makes sense. Well, that was James and that's wrong. Well, wait a minute, you know, is scripture infallible or not? Yeah. If you think James is wrong, what other verses are wrong here in scripture, mm-hmm. right? We or, in church, or, or, or subordinate in some way, in any right, way. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So I, I, I then try to point out some of the beauties of the church, you know, we believe that scripture is infallible. We read it as a whole, which is why I was just talking to you about what's said in the Old Testament and how it is supported in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we believe all of it. We don't think there's any errors. So if you find these two verses difficult, then you need to dive a couple of levels below it to understand how the church brings those two together into a very important teaching about the forgiveness of sin and your salvation. So that's how I would appreciate it. I would, I would approach it um, in, in trying to have both a facts-based and a collegial collaborative conversation on the topic. Yeah. Now, because I got to find out where they're at and where they're coming from, where they developed this. Um, And I read enough stuff on Paul from some very, very excellent exegetes to know specifically where that perception and belief in the Protestant churches comes from. Um, And so if we can meet a second time for coffee or a third time for coffee, I can bring some of these books in that go into much more depth about <clears throat> reconciling Paul and James yeah. or the Old Testament and New Testament and give them some good fodder to be able to think through this problem and get it straight in their mind. Yeah. Uh, one other question I've been meaning to ask you, John 20, 23, the mention of retaining sins in your experience how do RCIA candidates view that Protestants? How is that viewed? Because for me, when I came across that verse, that spoke so loudly. I try to avoid proof texts, but it spoke so loudly to what a priestly duty is. I was wondering, how do people explain the retention part of John 20, 23? If you, if you can um, shed some light on that. People that I've talked, Protestants that I've encountered or RCIA yeah. classes, when I go through it, yeah, no one's ever seen it before. No kidding. No kidding. I mean, I was just going through this with a friend of mine who's Methodist, thinking about coming in the church. And we were doing it over a Zoom call just like this. And I had put together a, um, a biblical study around sacraments. And we actually started, uh, started in reconciliation because that was the one he was having a hang-up over. Yeah. And so I went straight to that, those verses in John's gospel. And he, we, he read it, we read it together. I explained it to him and he says, well, you know, I haven't really seen that before or I haven't concentrated on it, but I don't find that compelling. And so the next week I started in the Old Testament and I started in chapter five of Leviticus where it actually says that when Uh, the Jews would come into the temple to sacrifice um, in order to reconcile with God. 
they would first have to confess their sins to the Levitical priest. So, and then the Levitical priest would go over and essentially kill the animal and, and um, butcher it according to the Mosaic law so that the proper sacrifice could be done in, in reconciling his sins. And so I started there and I said, so you have this history of millions and millions and millions of animals, millions of encounters every day in the temple for over a thousand years, 1500 years of telling sins to a priest. Yeah. And then we go into John's gospel and Jesus breathes on them, gives them the Holy Spirit. And he says to them, as the father has given me all power and authority, so I give you all power and authority. Well, what did the Jews believe was one of the greatest powers that only God had, the forgiveness of sin. So he gave that power. I give you all the power the Father has given me. So he gave the apostles the power and authority to forgive sin. And here in John, he specifically gives it to them. And so when he says, whose sins you retain are retained, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, how are they going to know which sins to retain and which ones to forgive if the sins aren't told to them? Yeah. And not only that, I was just, exactly. Well, even if you say priesthood of all believers, I would still ask that person. And I have been asking this, what does it mean if someone comes to you and confesses for you to retain when there's no command for you to be, to even consider some type of retention, which would be the equivalent, in my opinion, of holding some type of grudge, unless you've been given power to see a contrite heart or a non-contrite right. heart. You know what I mean? Right. So, right. And then I'll take them to James chapter five, I think it's verse 28, where there's actually an example of a presbyter and a group of people. And James is, is recounting that, um, you know, and when someone is sick, call in the presbyter to pray for them and anoint them, i.e. the anointing of the sick. And all people shall confess their sins. Now they're they're doing a communal penance service where everybody's hearing the sins, but the priest is there to hear them and forgive them. And then, but then I have to go down to the next level and I have to say, why does the church task priests with this authority to forgive sins? And there's a couple of reasons for that, but it gets down to two things, keeping the penitent honest giving the penitent the opportunity to get counseling. You know, if you have um, a priest that you can go to confession on a regular basis to develop a relationship with that knows you, understands your inclinations to sin, that priest can help you with means and ways of bettering your life and overcoming these sins, being a better husband, being a better father. Okay, so there's, there's brilliance in this Catholicism, as Matthew Kelly talks about it, the genius of Catholicism. Um, and then the, then the other reason is, is that you know with certainty that your sins are forgiven because the priest tells you, I absolve you of all of your sins, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I talk about the times that I've gone, that I've walked out of there just on cloud nine, joyful that my sins are forgiven. That, that I've experienced this mercy of God, the love of God through this priest. So it is not so much the, the priest forgiving my sins as it is God working through the priest to forgive my sins, which is done in acts, not specifically with penance, but healing. Yeah. Right. When the shadow of Peter yep. goes over these people, it's not Peter's shadow that is healing these people. And we have to remember that illness is a symbol, an allegory for sin. It's not Peter's shadow. It's God working through Peter. Mm -hmm. And so why can't God work through these priests? So that's how I go. That's how I approach and go through reconciliation. That's great. But I ultimately get to, it takes courage. It takes courage for you and me as a sinner to get on my knees to go into the confessional, bless me, Father, I'm a sinner. I haven't been here in however long. 
and I seek the forgiveness and the mercy of God. Well, remember the resistance that you discussed when you had you felt the call and you said, I, "Yeah, I'm not yeah. ready for that." Yeah. I can only imagine cradle Catholics and non have that same thing. Exactly. I, I'm supposed to open my mouth to another human <laughs> about this. Uh, instead, I think I'm going to mock the sacrament because that would make it, you know, it doesn't, it's not real. Instead of acknowledging the fear <laughs> that you, that rises up in you just because you actually can fathom what that would be like face to face, right. not right. even face to face. Right. Either way. Right. Right. Yeah. And one of the things we do stress very early on during this conversation on um, reconciliation with the RCIA folks is the seal of the confessional and the obligation that the priest is under of not divulging these sins, any sins yeah. in any context. They can't even divulge that you come to confession. Yeah. Um, and then when we bring Father Ben in or the parochial vicar for the conversation, and talk specifically about it. He says, you need to recognize that when I hear confessions, especially on weekends, it's 15, 20, 25, 30 people. There's no way I can remember anyone's sins. I don't try to remember their sins. I don't want to remember their sins. Yeah. But I can't put a face to sins. I just can't. And my brother priests can't either. Um, our job is to is to give you the mercy of God, is for God to work through us to bless you with his mercy and forgiveness. Yeah. Well, and I'd also say that if you have an incredible fear of being known by another fellow human, what, what trembling <laughs> would happen to know that it's like we forget that God sees all and to be able to just put aside that fear and say courageously, yes, I will be known. Um, I will open my mouth. And in that moment, for so many, those walls come tumbling down and, and, and a person is set free. That's why they talk about there's nothing better than re reconciling to Christ and admitting, okay, we can keep talking about it. We're, we all fall short. Yes, let's talk about how we have fallen short. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the priest will tell you, <clears throat> look, you're not going to tell me anything I haven't heard tens of thousands of times. There are no sins out there. Many of us has the, have the same sins as thousands of other, millions of other people. Yeah. yeah. My job isn't to categorize you. My job is not to make you feel inferior. My job is not to put you down. My job is to have God work through me to forgive your sins. That's what they stress. But it is hard. I mean, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna downplay it at all. I no. mean, even for me that enjoys going to confession, you know, as I walk in, I've got to, I have to, I have to consciously recognize that my ego is fighting against the sacrament. Right. Um, That's what, that's the opportunity. So, and I just say, I want to experience the mercy of God. Yeah. I want to experience his love. And that those words of reconciliation, the forgiveness of sin are just often bring me to tears. And I, I mentioned this at the men's conference when I was speaking and I said that you're, you're not too far gone. That's one of the biggest traps in this whole thing where you, you were speaking to it when you said, you know, the priest has heard every type of sin, but that's such a trap to just say, no, you don't understand. I'm a different type of breed. You know, I'm worse than all these guys. So I'm too far gone. And so I was calling them. I'm like, you're not too far gone. I even had a really good friend say that I had distanced myself from some old friends and I was not trying to it was just a season in my life. I needed to break away from my old lifestyle. And my buddy said, hey, why don't you come back into this text group? It's a big group of us. We'd love to have you back. We noticed you dropped out. And I said, I'll think about that. Why don't you think about coming back to church? 
And that's how he responded. He said, brother, I'm too far gone. And I said, no, you're not. So, but it actually made me tear up as I walked away after I heard him say that. We were both running. It was kind of like these parting words. He's like, yeah. come back. And I'm saying, come back. <laughs> yeah. I think a good priest would have said to your friend, if they had that conversation is, well, let's talk about that. Yeah. We won't go to confession, but let's just talk about why you feel that way. Feel that way. Yeah. Because the fact that you feel bad, you feel you're, you're far gone, is because your ego is telling you, as God is calling you to forgiveness. He wants to forgive you. He desperately wants to forgive you. You're fighting against it. Let's go talk about this. If it's yeah. not confession, you have to want to go to confession to have your sins forgiven. But let's just talk about your, where you are in your relationship with Christ and what he wants, the relationship he wants with you. Yeah. Desperately wants to love you and let you love him. Yeah. And there's certainly a difference between saying I'm too far gone, which is admitting God, right? <laughs> Versus get out of my face. I don't believe in anything. So I, yeah. I, I always view that right. as what you just said. Let's talk about it. Because for you to say you're too far gone, gone from what? You know what I mean? What's, what's the objective place that you have left? And, and that's where you and your program and efforts here come in. Because all you got to do is just say, watch a couple of my videos. You think you're too far gone. You're almost a saint compared to some of these guys in the problems that we've had. And, and so that's where I think your work is so essential and so important to reconciling people to the church and to God. Well, the church is God, but reconciling because we, if, if we're just with, stuck within our head yeah. in this secular world, we're alone. Yeah. This is the, the privatizing and the relativization of faith. Yeah. If we're going to lock in the closet, then we don't have this opportunity for community and to share where we all are as broken people seeking the love of Christ. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know if you have time for one more comment. But... No, I have time. Go ahead. Um, I just think back when I was in the Protestant church, this can happen on the Protestant side or the Catholic side. You go to conferences, you go to these summits, you go to any group gathering and someone is talking about the different sins that men deal with or the different sins that all humanity deal with. And you kind of just kind of curl up. Nope, not me. Not me at all. <laughs> nope. It's all these other guys. Look at them just squirming in their chairs. And meanwhile, I'm like, like this. There is something to be said about when a word is spoken and you are you feel some guilt. People like to throw guilt away like it's meaningless. It's a horrible thing. No, that is telling you something. That's it right. Is telling you something. That's right. That is severe. That could be, that could have severed you from the church, right? And in those moments, I just wish more of us would just stand up and say, yeah, I'm, in fact, I don't even care if everyone else is going to agree guilty guilty and the reason i said that is because i think communities form and bonds are formed lifelong bonds when people know that about each other yes you know yes um and well as you're out on the as you're out on the speaking circuit just pull that in to your yeah. speech right yeah just challenge the audience now i know i'm not alone standing up here yeah being being a sinner and having done this yeah how many of you have the courage to stand up hopefully you've reconciled yeah whether it's an addiction to pornography whether it's addiction to alcohol um, adultery i mean any of those things yeah and you'll feel this weight come off of you once you come out of the closet imagine yeah. what it's going to feel like when you're blessed by god and given the graces from the Holy Spirit because your sins have been forgiven. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Anything um, else you wanna, you wanna add before we, we call it? Um, not at this time. I mean, I, 
I am so appreciative of the men that have come in my life. My wife, my son, Peter, that helped me on this journey. Um, and I feel very blessed to be able to serve as a deacon and, and minister at St. Mark's and my, my diocesan role. Um, maybe another time we could just have some conversations on Bible studies. Yes. And what I'm trying to do at St. Mark's and um, uh, to get some more interest and, and find out what other studies would be interesting to people to get them to engage with scripture so that all of us as Christians can have a dialogue about God and about his church. Very good. Yeah. Okay. Agreed. Thank you so much. Audience, if you like this video, please share it. Please subscribe. Please comment, like the video, et cetera, et cetera. Until next time, take care and God bless.